Well, it's uh, 8 o'clock, and they cut us off right on time, so I'm going to start, if it's okay. And my name is Sam Thielman, and uh, I'm a psychiatrist in Asheville, North Carolina. So my current job is um, I work with an organization, which is not very big, called Stillwaters Global that does consulting work for uh, Samaritan's Purse and a little bit for Open Doors and some other people. <laughs> and... Um, so, but for a long time I was a psychiatrist for the U.S. Department of State, and uh, part of my job there was uh, to work on a curriculum and training for resilience, and I found it so useful that I've actually kind of ended up bringing it into the stuff that I do right now. So, I'll, if any of you were at my talk on the Psalms yesterday, the first three Three to four slides are going to be repetitive, and the rest won't be. And for the rest, I'll just tell you a little bit of how I got into the Foreign Service. So um, in 1999, I was in private practice, and I was really frustrated with managed care and looking for something different. And uh, a friend of mine called up and said, hey, do you know the address of a mutual friend of ours? There's a job opening at the State Department. And uh, I thought he would be interested. And I said, well, hey, I might be interested. And so um, so he said, oh, I thought you were happy in private practice. And I said, no, I'm kind of looking for something different. So I interviewed for this job with the Foreign Service. And my friend, who had actually held this job, um, had uh, been in Vienna for five years. And so I wondered at the time, well, maybe it would be Rome, perhaps Vienna. Uh, could it be London? And, in fact, it was Nairobi, Kenya. Okay, so they, you know, when I asked where it would be, that's what they said. And, and I uh, thought for a minute. And um, then uh, it occurred to me that they'd asked me a lot of questions about bombings during the interview. And um, I thought for a second, I said, well, wasn't that where there was a bombing last year? And they said, well, yes, they bombed our embassy in uh, Nairobi and also Dar es Salaam. And you would be the psychiatrist who would be responsible for, uh, you know, sort of dealing with the survivors of the bombing and helping with the response to the bomb. So um, anyway, they chose me, so I did it. And, um, you know, I knew something about PTSD just from my residency. But I didn't. I was. I wouldn't think anyone would call me a big expert on PTSD. But I got a little bit of a baptism by fire then, by going over there to Nairobi, and in fact, it turned out pretty well. And uh, but anyway, so here's the here's from the August 7, 1998, which was the uh, day of the the uh, bombing. Uh, there were uh, 213 people killed, and 5,000 people were injured. And at the time, I really had no idea, you know, what what it meant for something like that to happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, once I got there, I realized it's really super catastrophic. You know, if, a, if a, like, a violent incident kills somebody in that short period of time and, and, and all these people are injured. And, and I, if you go to Nairobi today, anybody who was there at the time of the bombing has a pretty distinct uh, idea of, uh, of that bombing. So... Uh, that kind of introduced me into this world of um, of dealing with survivors of these kind of disasters and so on. So I was there for three and a half years, and I covered not only Nairobi, but uh, the embassy in Dar es Salaam. And then it, I was regional, so I was covering the embassies in, 
in East and Central Africa and the Horn of Africa. So it included a lot of very distressed places, uh, South Sudan, Sudan, uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, uh, the two Congos, uh, Rwanda, Burundi, uh, all those places. So it was quite interesting from a psychiatric perspective. And then when I got back to Washington, um, I, we invaded Iraq, okay? Uh, and, and so... Um, so I ended up being the chief of crisis response for mental health uh, for the department, and uh, we had coalition provisional authority at the time, so the coalition provisional authority was mainly a, a, a military thing, but State Department was involved. And so this is me taking a picture on a C-130 going into uh, Baghdad to check out the mental health resources for the State Department. Uh, there, and I won't go into all the details there. There's just me there, blah, blah, blah. There's uh, taking down the statue of Saddam Hussein at the, in the green zone. Here was um, the, the, this, I'm from western North Carolina. This looks a lot like western North Carolina, but it's the Thousand Hills in Kigali, Rwanda. And uh, this is from the Hotel Mil Colleen. I don't know if you've ever heard of this Hotel Rwanda movie, but this is, this is the hotel and and there were lots of people, like a tenth of the population of Rwanda was killed uh, over a period of four months uh, in 1994. And here they were getting ready to do this um, monument to the deceased. There were so many people killed that they couldn't really bury them all in a proper way. So they had this big monument in the middle of Kigali. So I'm putting all those in there because, you know, um, I, 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 it, I was dealing with a lot of things I hadn't expected to deal with. And um, I was talking with a lot of people who have been through things. I, and I would suggest probably most people don't have any idea in terms of how to advise people, if you haven't been through this, uh, how to, to, to cope with it. But one thing I observed over time is, first of all, it didn't turn out to be the disaster, for, mental health disaster, for all the people who went through this that you would expect. And the second thing was that uh, there were different trajectories for people. So some people went through these events and found them to be like the worst thing that had ever happened to them. And you've probably known people like this, you know, who went through like some, uh, some calamity. And you can't talk to them for ten minutes, but what, they'll, they'll bring this up, okay? That's not a very good outcome, okay? There's some people who go through a horrible event and then they kind of, they eventually kind of get back to where they were, you know, it, 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 it took its toll, but, but they learned some things. And then there are people who experience what they, what's termed post-traumatic growth, where you actually, you actually went through this horrible thing, and then people will say that, you know, it was terrible, but in the end, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, because this, that, and the other happened. So those are just three, these th different trajectories of people. And that's very interesting to me as a psychiatrist, and toward the end of my career, I was getting ready to retire. My friend uh, Ray Leckie called up from the Foreign Service Institute, and he said, Hey, Sam, um, I want you to come back and be our senior advisor on resilience. And um, I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've never heard of resilience. And what little I've heard of it, I don't think I believe in, because it just seems like one of these terms they throw around. And he said, No, no, you'll do a great job. And <laughs> anyway, he talked me into it. So I went back, and I studied up on this concept. And in the end, I realized, you know, I think this is... I understand what they are talking about because uh, because of these three trajectories. Because 
Resilience turned out to be the idea that um, some people, it's a quality, you know, that you of bouncing back after a time of uh, trauma or uh, or thriving in adverse circumstances. So that's what's meant by resilience. It's not a quality everybody has, and it is kind of a quality, but it's also um, something that I think a person can build on. So what resilience you have, I think you can foster it. Um, so I, let's see, I'm going to skip over a little of this because I did it in my Psalms talk, but I'll, I'll just mention this briefly here. Um, this, this is from a paper by a guy named Paul Bartone, who is a psychologist at the National Defense uh, University. Uh, he, he's well regarded. He, he, in military psychology, a lot of times they're looking at uh, not only post-trauma, but how to select people to do these kind of tough assignments. And so one thing they study a lot is hardiness. And, um, but anyway, he, he wanted to find out what were the sources of low morale among the troops in Iraq, you know, when after Abu Ghraib and so on. And so he, they looked at a lot, of, uh, a lot of the soldiers and what they found were these things. And, in fact, I think there's a lot of overlap between this and, and anybody who's doing any kind of overseas work for the church, okay? So, um, and I've adapted a little bit of this from the military terms, but one was ambiguous job duties, okay? So they didn't really know what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, a lot of them felt isolated, they felt, and uh, they felt powerless to do anything about the things they were um, experiencing. A lot of them were experiencing secondary trauma or compassion fatigue. There was this exposure to um, poverty and economic inequity. And then there uh, is this thing of worldview angst, like how come this exists, okay? And I would say certainly, like, from working with the people I've worked with at uh, Samaritan's Purse over the five years since I retired from the State Department, I would say this fits with Christian work pretty well, too, especially if you're doing short-term Christian work and you haven't really had a chance to develop um, an understanding of uh, things. Um, So, just throwing that out there. So, um, If you don't attend to this, there's several things that you can get into, and I'm just kind of putting these out there for you to kind of file away. Uh, One is compassion fatigue, so this is kind of where you uh, just get tired of helping. Um, And, in fact, a lot of medical people have this anyway. So um, just, in fact, it may be why you're wanting to go into Christian work, because you have compassion fatigue. But anyway, anyway, one is compassion fatigue where you're just kind of tired uh, burnout, where you're like, you, you know, you're just tired all the time. You're cynical. You feel like your values and the values of your organization don't really line up, um, and um, it's a work-related thing. Like when you go home, you feel great, but when you're at work, it's like you're dragging. And then there's actual post-traumatic stress disorder. And you know, if you're if, depending on where you are, and you can be in a lot of different situations with, uh, you know, with overseas Christian work. You can be, especially if you're in like sub-Saharan Africa or Asia, you can be the victim of, uh, you know, trauma. You can be the one who got traumatized. But you can also, and you can do this just as as a medical person anyway, you hear the stories over and over and over, and this is really true for people who work in a trauma setting, you know. But you hear this so much that it kind of becomes part of you. You know, you start dreaming about it and, 
you know, whatever. That, so that's, and that's actually, in the current way we think about PTSD, uh, that meets the criteria for being traumatized, you know, uh, to kind of have heard these things over and over, not just kind of one time, but it's, uh, you know, it can do that. So anyway, so here, here are four concepts. So we're getting on to resilience now that are, that are related. And I just want to mention them to you because sometimes people, uh, you know, people ask me about them when I talk about resilience. But one is hardiness. Okay, so this is this military concept, but also others uh, study this. This is, a, this is an inborn trait, more or less. Uh, it's the way they think of it anyway. Uh, so it's a sense of control over your circumstances, uh, commitment to what you're doing, and then a, an ability to tolerate change. So you're somebody who can, okay, they change it, well, we'll deal with it, you know, and so on. So that's hardiness. Um, Grit, and a lot of people know about grit because there's a really interesting book by Angela Duckworth called uh, Grit. You know, who's a, she's a psychologist, and it, this refers to the quality of uh, passion and persistence. Okay, and um, it's probably not as it's widely known. It's not nearly as well studied as resilience. And then resilience is this idea of bouncing back and also thriving under pressure. Okay. And I'm throwing this next one in, too, virtue, okay? So I, I, I was looking at all these resilience qualities I'm about to mention to you, and I'm realizing in some ways these are, it's kind of secular virtue talk in a way, okay? So I'm going to tell you how I think about this, and hopefully you'll find it helpful. So virtue, here, here's from... Um, I think this is Aristotle talking here, uh, but it's Aristotle adapted by St. Thomas, Aquinas, and Augustine. Okay, so virtue is that which makes his possessor good and his work good likewise. So that's a virtue. Okay, and uh, and the, so the four Christian virtues, I mean the the uh, seven Christian virtues are uh, faith, hope, and love, and then prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. So here they are here. So faith, hope, and love, those are very biblical in 1 Corinthians 13. Then prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, these are the classical Christian virtues that are talked about by St. Thomas Aquinas and and, and medieval theologians and and subsequently in the Catholic Church especially. Um, So prudence itself refers to practical wisdom, okay? So that's actually something that is... um, it's not referred to a lot in the New Testament explicitly, but I think implicitly there's a lot of discussion of wisdom in the New Testament. So prudence is the ability to do the right thing at the right time, you know. So if you think of political leaders who do the right thing but are imprudent, and often they don't pull it off very well, okay. Uh, and so that, that's the value of prudence. And in fact, if you do the right thing the wrong way, it may not end up being the right thing. So it's a really important kind of thing to think about. And then temperance is sort of self-control. And justice is self-evident, I hope. And then uh, fortitude or is the same thing as courage. And, this is, uh, uh, and then in a minute I'm going to talk about endurance. So these are, the, um, these are the seven classical Christian virtues. So you might just kind of hold these in the background of your thinking as we talk about these so-called resilience factors that I'm going to mention in a second. Because the resilience factors are pretty well demonstrated in the social science research and the psychological research, uh, and there's some overlap with Christian virtues. Um, so, yeah, here's St. Augustine talking. Prudence is love choosing wisely between the things that help and those that hinder. So, 
So I think resilience kind of falls under this category of being prudent, really. Because this is going to help us understand if we kind of work on our resilience, it's going to help us do the Christian things in a, in a, a way that helps us to endure. Now, when we were at the State Department, the, there are quite a few definitions of resilience, um, but um, they all have a lot of overlap. And this is the one, this is the definition we used and still use. And, uh, and I think it, it captures pretty much the consensus, which is the capa- capacity to adapt successfully in the presence of risk and adversity and to bounce back from setbacks, trauma, and high stress. Okay, so there are two components. So one is to bounce back. So there's a certain amount of pushback between on this notion of bouncing back because a lot of people, you know, especially survivors will say, you know what, I'm not bouncing back. You know, it's like, so they, they can get a little bit confrontational on this. Nonetheless, there are some people who tend to do better. Okay, so that's, that's that part of it. And the second is the ability to... Um, uh, to thrive, to adapt successfully or in the presence of risk and adversity. Okay, so, um, yeah, so this is where you're in a tough situation and you're just kind of able to carry on, okay? And you know, if you've been in these hard situations, there are people who do not adapt. I mean, you, you know, you get in on these short-term, you know, kind of uh, missions or disaster relief things, especially disaster relief stuff. That is tough. That is very, very tough work. And a lot of times the bosses, you know, can be pretty driven, and they're not often on the ground. You know, back in... Uh, in Nairobi, we used to, so I ended up doing two tours there. So I was there, and I see my friends there from Nairobi too. I'm not the only one who lived in Nairobi, but uh, they used to. We used to talk about being controlled by the people with the 8,000 mile screwdriver back in Washington. You know, who would be telling us what to do, and you can really get the sense when you're, you know, kind of in a, you know, overseas in an organization, and you're being controlled back in some, you know, back home. And then you're on the ground, and they they don't have a clue, you know, as to what's going on here. So, but but when you're adapting successfully to these, uh, in the presence of risk and adversity, you're kind of calculating that in. You're figuring out how to do that. You kind of ha- you hack that problem. So that's part of resilience. Okay. Why do we want to attend to this? Okay. The reason is because there's a lot of dropout in Christian work. Okay. There's a lot of dropout in missions. And so we want to attend to this. First of all, we want people to really think about what they do before they do it and make sure that they really feel the calling of the Lord as best they know it, which can be really, that can be a very kind of tricky thing to work out. And uh, second is we don't want casualties from Christian work. You know, and there, there are a certain number of people get disillusioned or even lose their faith or get cynical or whatever from having done this. So we don't want that. Okay, so... Uh, It's entirely possible for people doing uh, uh, Christian work overseas to develop substance abuse problem, but certainly unexplained irritability, um, emotional detachment, uh, depression, and uh, and moral injury, which there's a lot written about, which we won't talk about too much today. So, having gone through that kind of scenario, what are we? You know, what what is resilience, and how do you get it, and how do you maintain it, and can you get it? Well, if you remember on that resilience slide, I had a, there was a battery there, okay? So the battery reflects the concept that resilience, this, this quality of resilience waxes and wanes. So you can have the most resilient person and put them in a super tough environment, and they'll do well for a while. But if you run that out for two or three years, 
virtually nobody's going to be resilient at the end of that time, okay? And um, our back of the department, this, um, this is my source of reference, so excuse me if I, you know, kind of refer to this constantly, but, but you know, the, we would tell these ambassadors, you know, who would say, look, you know, this crisis is going on. It's a 24-7 thing. It's like, you can use that for, like, six weeks. Not that they would listen to us, but we'd tell them. You can use this for six weeks, but, you know, after that, it's not a 24-7 crisis. I mean, there's got to be something that you would work out. So, anyway, so if you, if you drive people for, you know, just on and on, the resilience is going to wane, okay? So, even, and I know... People, you all, if you're if you served overseas at all, you're self-selected, and you're just if you're if you did if you've done it at all um, for any length of time, you're probably by definition sort of a resilient person just because you did it. Okay, so if you find yourself getting disillusioned and whatever, you know, then that uh, that suggests you need restoration or whatever. So this thing waxes and wanes. So, uh, but anyway, what's the qual- what are the qualities of resilient people? And, of course, the ones that we're really interested in are the qualities that you can develop. Okay, so let's say, um, you know, you're doing pretty well, you have some things, but, you know, what do you focus on? Like, what would help me to be more resilient? Because if you do the biology of resilience, which there's a lot of work done on, I mean, this this gets really detailed. I mean, they, people look at this at a molecular level. They look at it at a systems level and, and so on. And so there's some innate qualities that some people have that others don't biologically, okay, or don't have as much of biologically. You know, okay, so we can't, we can't, can't affect that. But surely, I mean, if there's anything we know kind of from the way science works right now is there's, you can change even things that you seem to be programmed for. That's kind of what... Well, it's not necessarily about you changing, but epigenetics is kind of about environmental influences affecting us, you know, in, in big ways. So, so how do we do this? So, so I'm going to go through these qualities of resilience, okay? So this is going to, hopefully this will be a kind of a starting point for you as you go forward, because you'll see each one of these are things that you could dig in deep on. So I just want to kind of focus you in this direction, and then I'll, if you want to read up on this, uh, the best introduction, I think, is probably a book called uh, Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. It's by Stephen Southwick and Dennis Charney, who are two research psychiatrists, one at Yale and one at Mount Sinai. And uh, both of them are very prolific research authors, but they've written this book that's kind of a summary of uh, the concept of resilience and the kind of the state of the art. And it's for the educated layperson. It's for people very much like the people in this audience. So, um, so, and a lot of these resilience factors that I'm mentioning are largely taken from that work, but there are a lot of resilience factors. These are, these are key, and some of these are more well demonstrated than others, but I think all of them are useful to think about. And, and I'm... Uh, yeah, so I'll just uh, continue on here. So one is that people who are resilient typically have sturdy role models, okay? So a lot of the resilience research started with children, okay? Ch- children from disadvantaged circumstances who who were found to do better than you would expect. So children of schizophrenics, children from very kind of uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged circumstances, and some of those did poorly, but then there were some who did well. And when they studied why they did well, one reason that some of them did well was because an adult had taken interest in them. Okay? So there's the mentoring part, but, uh, but then there's pe- people who were resilient in the military and other places. 
identify people they want to be like and then model themselves after that person. So, uh, so that's uh, the first one. The second is people who were resilient uh, tended to be cognitively flexible. So a lot of times in, um, I would say in Christian circles, it's not that uncommon, people can be really inflexible in their thinking. It's like very black and white, you know. And so uh, that's counter-resilient. I'm not sure it's that, in fact, I'm pretty sure it's not Christian because it's usually not motivated by love, okay. But, um, but anyway, resilient people are cognitively flexible. So they're people who can look at things a number of ways and, uh, and understand them. They're people who are good at, at problem solving, so they're active problem solvers. So they don't just let stuff happen to them. They like try to work out a solution. They'll be taking the lead. In fact, people who are resilient, um, they fall in this category of uh, self-efficacious. Like they, they, they're, they're self-starters. Okay, so that was one of the big qualities. So a fourth one was that they were people, and this, this is a little controversial to some people, but. There's a fair amount of research on this. They were optimistic, okay? Now, optimism can be a two-edged sword. So, because um, there are people who just say, you know, oh, it'll work out. Don't worry about it. It's going to work out. And a lot of, you know, it doesn't always work out. I mean, you know, so it's like, and so that, that realistic optimism is, you know, the key word is realistic. So, for the, but for the people who were resilient, there were people who kind of, okay, they weren't just kind of dragging everything down with the negative possibilities. They were you know, they were kind of, I think there might be a way to go on this. So that was one of their qualities. There's some funny angles on these things, too. I don't want to get in too deeply. But, you know, there's some of the positive psychology work. If you read it, you'd come away thinking, well, if you fool yourself into being optimistic, you're going to be more resilient. I find that a very cynical point of view. And as a Christian, I don't think that's probably true. But anyway, but anyway so realistic optimism is one. Uh, another is uh, people who were resilient sought social support. So they were people who weren't loners. They and when they were in tough times, they would go out there and seek out um, seek out help. They didn't just let themselves sort of sit around. Um, they were people who, uh, on number six, they were people who had an inner moral compass. And again, if we, so we developed this award-winning curriculum at the State Department on resilience, okay? And uh, we would present this. And these guys, um, a lot of people would push back on this. Like, they was, they would, when we would say inner moral compass. So this is like people who know where true north is, if you know this stuff in the business literature. They're people who kind of, they'll do the right thing as they understand it, regardless of what the crowd is doing, because they, you know, so that's resilience, it's a quality of resilience, but we would get pushback, saying, no, you should just kind of, you need to do what you're told, blah, 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 you're pushing religion on us and all this. This is what they said in number seven, too. Um, and in fact, we were pushing religion. This is what the resilience research says, okay? But um, anyway, I think after I left, they eliminated some of these, but... <laughs> um, so... Um, yeah, but so number seven is um, people who were resilient tended to people who, be people who drew from religious and spiritual resources. Okay, well, hey, this is like no news to us, you know, as Christians. Uh, but um, but anyway, when they look at the resilience research, this is what they found. 
uh, they found that they were people who paid attention to their own physical, mental, and emotional well-being. So there were people who went out and tried to be physically fit, which is something to think about if you're in a kind of really restricted overseas environment because it can be hard to get exercise. So um, in Iraq, they used to say you would either um, you'd come back, you'd either be a hunk, a skunk, a drunk, or a monk. This is the <laughs> And so, um, so they would eat. if you're a hunk, I guess you're exercising, skunk, you're fooling around with women, and drunk, you're drinking, and monk, you're religious. So anyway, and then, um, so they, and they paid attention to their mental well-being, so their people are constantly stimulating themselves, trying, you know, just kind of so keeping up on stuff, reading stuff. I know one of the psychiatrists who used to work with special forces was telling me that those guys they would just, any little thing they thought they could learn in depth, they would. Like, just whatever, crazy things. Because they thought it might come in useful someday. So they're constantly mentally stimulating. And then people who are resilient paid attention to emotional regulation. So I, you know, I trained in psychiatry in the so-called, in the Austin Powers era of psychiatry, where it's like, you know, if it feels good, do it, and groovy, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the idea was just, you know, get angry and, you know, whatever. But actually, people who are resilient have good emotional management. They're not people who are just constantly getting super angry and letting it all out just all the time. And so on. And, of course, there's a place for people talking in confidence and maybe you're really, you know, you need to ventilate to somebody. But typically, if you are constantly ventilating, that's not good for you. I mean, there's pretty, there's like more than one like study of, it's usually of college freshmen, you know, because that's a psychologist study. But, you know, people who just got really angry and, you know, versus people who didn't. And that, that actually raises your blood pressure and so on. So just getting angry all the time isn't good. So when, so attend to emotional regulation. And that's, that's clearly a Christian concept. Uh, and I'll tell you more about that in a second. And then uh, people who were resilient could find meaning in adversity. So they were able to locate, you know, um, well, actually they say where they were meaning-making individuals. So I, I don't really like that term because it, it, it suggests that we're just, we all have our own reality. So I, w- I would think a better way to think of it as a meaning-identifying individual. And I think, the you know, God's Word gives us a lot of ways to do that. And then finally, uh, people who were resilient... Were, 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 took responsibility for their own emotional well-being. So they weren't constantly looking to other people. So they sought social support, but they weren't trying to get other people to fix it for them all the time. I mean, they were the ones who, you know, who were, you know, trying to work on it. So, um, so that's, so as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, well, you know, there's a certain amount, I, I just think Christians have an edge on this, as I'm just looking at this kind of concept, okay? Because, okay, look. We're going to have an inner moral compass. That's our conscience, okay? And it's being formed by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Um, it, we, we're going to be drawing, of course, from religious and spiritual resources. Um, and then, let's see. Um, uh, we, because we are Christians, we're going to be more able to find meaning in adversity, okay? Then, so when things you know, go wrong, we kind of think, think that... In, uh, in a Christian sense. So I was giving a talk like this uh, to the employees of USAID in South Sudan. And they were, you know, the local employees there, South Sudanese, that, it's a very, it's the, many very serious Christians in South Sudan, even though it's a very chaotic country. 
And one of the senior guys raised his hand. He'd gone through a lot of suffering because he talked about it. He says, you know, here in South Sudan, religion and spirituality, that's like not number seven for us. That's like over everything. Like everything comes under this. You know, he's telling us to the State Department trainers. And um, I'm thinking, you know, that guy's exactly right. I kind of had that thought before. But then um, I had it further. And so I put my rainbow here. I've reappropriated the rainbow. And I'm putting a rainbow over this uh, because everything is under God. Like this is all in Christ. So we don't want to be thinking this is stuff we would just be doing. But I do think, I think these are all things that, um, that the Holy Spirit can work in. And, of course, if he's not working in it, that we shouldn't be doing it in the first place. But I really do think, I think in some ways there's a little bit of an observation of Christian virtues at work, and then there's a kind of a sucking out of God from the concept, and then they're studying this. But in fact, there's a lot, there's a, I think this is something we can feel really good about, actually. So, um, anyway, so cognitive flexibility. Um, each of these things, there are, uh, there's very good psychology research on. So people who are cognitive, so cognitive flexibility would have to do with things like gratitude. So if you're able to, to be grateful for things in difficult circumstances, like that's a resilience factor, okay? Um, if you are able to forgive, if you have so-called dispositional forgiveness, uh, which is this kind of quality of being a forgiving person, uh, that's a resilience factor. And if you have a sense of humor, although this isn't like, you know, commanded by scripture or anything, it seems to be reflective of uh, Christians um, who are, you know, kind of in a good state of mind. So uh, humor is a, but it's another fact, uh, feature of cognitive flexibility. So uh, uh, the ability to see things in in different ways. Um, And then, of course, cognitive flexibility helps you find meaning in adversity. And the social support of the church or your Christian fellowship uh, can be very helpful in, in reinforcing uh, inner moral compass, religious and spiritual resources, and meaning in adversity. Um, so, wanting to kind of understand more how this fit into our Christian faith, I, I kind of wanted to, uh, to tie this back to Scripture. So, for social affiliation... Um, I realized, this is reminding me of Hebrews, you know, where the writer says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're really commanded to get together at least weekly to worship. I will say, if you're in overseas Christian work, that seems to be something that's easy to neglect, okay? So I would really, if it's something that you are in the middle of or intend to do or, you know, coming back from, think about attending to this, okay, because uh, that's important. Um, so cognitive flexibility. Um, here's, um, here's Paul talking in 1 Corinthians. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, for you, okay. So rejoicing in everything, this cognitive flexibility, the, gra- the gratefulness and the thankfulness, and so on. And, and earlier, if you heard the talk on the Psalms, you know, if you want to go to the Psalms as a way of expressing your thankfulness to God, that's a super good way to do it. Look especially toward the end of the book, um, where there's kind of a little collection of of these uh, Psalms that in the 140s. Okay. So uh, for meaning and adversity. 
Of this gospel I was made a minister, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So, here Paul is saying, like for us, there's a lot of mystery going on in the world as Christians. We know certain things for sure, okay, both through observing them and then through experiencing them, although sometimes the experiential part can be hard to access, but there's this mystery where this is one thing we believe in, that God, we, don't, we can't possibly understand the ways of God. Almighty, he's told us some of them, but there's some we don't know. But we believe there's a meaning in what's going on and that God is good and he's love. Okay? And then um, the inner moral compass. Uh, so this is in James, he's talking about whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we're, this, we're, we're challenged, we're called by James. And the scriptures to uh, follow our inner moral compass that God has given us. For sturdy role models. So this is like the, the idea of an example is a really old example. So the role model, that, that, that term role model was invented by, I think it was uh, Robert Merton is the guy's name, a sociologist who's very famous. Uh, he, he developed this in the 50s and, you know, about finding somebody to be your role model. But the idea of an example, that's like very, very ancient. So um, here's from John 13, Christ talking. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. So that's the Lord. And then here's James talking in in, uh, chapter 5. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So that we have a lot of really good examples even in the, in the scriptures to follow. And then so there and so he's saying follow the the prophets. So I like I think like, I like Daniel a lot for you know I think that's a really good book for the modern era, but um but anyway, but but then of course they're just great Christians and there are many many great Christian examples. So in more traditional churches like Catholic and Anglican, they actually formalize this into saints and now some of those saint stories are a little, you know, poorly documented, but others aren't, you know. And then uh and but even as Protestants, I mean, we look not only to them, but we have lots of people in, uh, who we look to, even contemporary examples of people who are really godly people who we want, who we can model ourselves by. So I think that's really useful because you can think about somebody like Eric Little. You know, this guy was so amazing, you know, who, um, who was this very principled person who was a missionary to China who, who died in a, I think he died in a, like an internment camp in, in China, but he's a very, very, very godly person and a wonderful example, really cheerful person. I mean, he's like a super example of resilience. Um, for emotional management, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant um, wickedness and um, sorry, it's too, too small. And uh, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So really, here, this is—we don't have a license to just get super angry. I mean, this isn't godly, okay? So that's in Psalm 37. It's in the, it's in Proverbs. It's here in the New Testament. So just if, if you if you're feeling this, like. Ask, ask the Lord to help you with that, because that will not help your resilience and your ability to kind of to get through the hard times. Um, 
let's see, in terms of religion and spirituality, and he made from, uh, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, that they should seek God. So this is in, in the heart of every person, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. And even we live in a really, really secular era. You know, we really do, especially in America. And, you know, as a psychiatrist, I mean, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and this is this super, super secular place. It really is. And, I mean, you know, but everybody's got God implanted in them. You know, the desire for God implanted in them. And so, um, he, he, and it's, it, so, so we, it's really going to be helpful if people can, can follow their desire for God and certainly for us to follow our desire for God and not be overwhelmed by the secular influences of, of our age. How are we doing? Okay. And then uh, taking responsibility for yourself. Every, uh, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Matthew 7.24. So I'm not... I'm not a person who's I thinks it's that biblical to let go and let God. I don't, you know. I think like there's certain times when you, you know, when that okay, that may fit. But generally, it's not let go and let God. God's like telling us to obey Him. I mean, He we're supposed to be like active. So, and and I think that's like that that has to do with this concept of self-efficacy too and resilience. But there's there's just so many different places. Psalm 62 at the very end where he says you'll be rewarded for the deeds you have done. And you can trace that all through the New Testament too. I mean, it's, we, we are really responsible for what we do. Okay, And sometimes, at least in the circles I'm in, there's this kind of hyper grace thing out there that just, you know, hey, you know, it's all just don't worry, you know, whatever. Well, okay, just be careful on that one because, you know, we're really responsible for how we live. And um, and God wants us to be bearing fruit. Uh, and uh, so, there we go. So, let's see. Stillness and waiting. Okay, so I'll mention a few of these because I do think this idea of, of, of resting in the Lord can be very helpful. So, uh, in Psalm 62, at the very first verse, it says, Only in God has my soul silence. Um, the St. Augustine took that on in the Confessions, and he said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. You know, so we're, we're, we find our solace in God, okay? And then, of course, in Psalm 46.10, at the end, uh, toward the end of that psalm, it says, Be still and know that I am God. So he's, we're being still in God. I think this can be really helpful when things are really tough around. Uh, psalm uh, 27.14, Wait for the Lord and be strong. And he shall comfort your heart. Wait patiently for the Lord. Um, psalm 37, 35. The Psalm 37 is a long psalm, but it's, it's got a lot of really rich stuff in it. Uh, wait upon the Lord and keep his way, and he will raise you up uh, to possess the land. And then again in Psalm 37, be still and uh, for the, before the Lord and wait for him. So I think if we can realize, if we can adopt this waiting in the Lord... I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a big proponent of mindfulness. I'm not a proponent at all of mindfulness. But, uh, but waiting in the Lord, I'm a proponent of. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, resilience. Resilience is actually a morally neutral 
concept. So, you know, COVID seems to be resilient. Nazis were resilient. Um, you know, ISIS is resilient. I mean, you know, you can, bad things can bounce back, okay? So, uh, so although I think resilience is a helpful tool for us in working toward resilience, uh, in fact, is not Christian. What is Christian, though, and that goes along with this concept and that will baptize it, so to speak, is the concept of endurance as it's used in the New Testament, which is this Greek word, upomone. Okay, now, my brother teaches Greek, and I used to say hypomone, because as a doctor we say hypo. But, um, but he says, no, Sam, that sounds stupid. You should say upomone. So this is the word, upomone. And it, it means a standing fast, and a, a waiting, an expectation, and it's all done in love. So it's motivated by selfish love and honor. So when you see in the New Testament, sometimes it's translated uh, patient endurance. Sometimes it's just translated patience. There's another word for patience, too. But anyway, Jesus talks about this a lot. It's actually all through. It's this Christian quality of, like, pressing on. And, you know, if the steamroller is coming, if you're about to be killed for your loving act that you're about to do, the upamone persists because we're in the kingdom of God. Okay, so we're in this enduring kingdom. Uh, so, let's see. So let's see, here's from uh, Luke 8:15, the parable of the sower. So the, this is the Lord talking. Uh, as for that in the good soil, so this is the seed, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with upamone. So that's the word. So that's what we're called to do. So that's what God's wanting us to do. So Luke 21, 17 to 19 You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. So, you know, the Christian faith, this isn't just signing the card and one and done and then you're on. You know, this is like, it's our commitment, okay? So he doesn't mean you're going to be saved, of course, we don't believe it. You're going to be saved by works. He means you're going to save your souls through enduring in me, okay? So that's what we're called to do. Um. So here's Paul talking in 2 Corinthians. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance, upamone, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So they're enduring in all these things. So so much for the prosperity gospel. Okay, so and then beatings, imprisonment. Oh, sorry. By purity, so they're enduring in these good things too. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor. Okay, so all of us who work in the medical field know that, you know, being Christian isn't usually very highly valued. Okay, so in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well-known, like people kind of pretend they don't know about the Lord, okay? As dying and see we're alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So... That's where we're supposed to be. Um, so, how about in terms of our Christian character? Where does endurance fit in? This is from Romans uh, 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, 
says, we are justified by faith. Very famous verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's upamone. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So I'm kind of plotting this out a little bit, okay? And I'm saying, okay, well, we've got the suffering, okay? And then the next thing, if you're going to put, you know, maybe this isn't stepwise, but if it's stepwise, then the next thing is not is the endurance. So you suffer, but then you're supposed to endure in your Christian faith through the suffering. And then... That's going to give you Christian character because you you know you're pushing on. You're put, that's that's going to develop you as a as a Christian person. And then once you get that Christian character going, that's going to help you with your hope. Like you're really going to feel like you can hope in God. He's doing this work of the Holy Spirit in you. And then hope will not disappoint because God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying if we can use our Christian resilience, our in Christ resilience, to help us. Um, uh, with our uh, endurance, then that's going to be godly. So we're having a little signal here for 10 minutes. Okay. So, now, here's from Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, uh, we, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance, upamone, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So that's something that we can really bear in mind. Okay, Jesus enduring this thing. Despising the shame. In fact, if you kind of work that out in Greek, it's it's, um, ashamed of the shame. And is seated at the right hand of God. So he's our example. I'm going to wrap up with this. A verse from uh, Psalm 145 that kind of stood out to me. It says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So that's who we're working for. Okay, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and gracious in all His deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling. And raises up all who are bowed down. So that's the Christian resilience, is the Lord raising us up. And I found it really interesting, um, when I was reading up on this verse, I found on Wikipedia that this verse is actually on the door of the Grand Mosque in Damascus, Syria. It's an old Byzantine church that, um, that the Muslims converted into, uh, into a mosque. And they left it for some reason. I don't know why. And the Byzantines had actually changed the verse. And it says, Your kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So, in fact, that's the kingdom we're working for. And I think if we're, if we're having that in mind, we can develop our resilience, we'll have our endurance, and we'll be contributing to the kingdom. So just to kind of summarize, um, I think as Christian health workers, we've got unique stresses. I think the Christian practices of prayer, worship, and fellowship are critical to enduring in the Christian life. I'm asking you to reflect on the resilience factors 
and try to develop those that make sense to you. So you'll find some of those, you know, okay, I'd like to do that. Some of those you think, I can think of doing that. And then monitor your resilience and get input from others uh, and work colleagues to maintain your resilience and endurance. So try to, you know, get people's read out. And then use Christian practices such as praying the Psalms so that with God's help, you can strengthen your resilience and your endurance. So, so any questions? This is kind of our end here. Yeah. So what if you find yourself in a situation where there's zero or maybe one or two Christians in your 10-mile vicinity, your really immediate vicinity? How would you recommend working with the social um, aspect of increasing endurance and resistance? Well, so um, use your self-efficacy, okay, and like, to, you know, kind of see what, so you might want to, uh, if you hadn't got it in, within 10 miles, you might do like, uh, do you have, like, are you talking about yourself maybe? Or? In, the future, in the future, so you're 10 miles away, so you, you do stuff just remotely like with, uh, you know, our phones and stuff, you can do that. Like, um, you could find yourself where you didn't have um so you don't have any Christians around anywhere. So you would, uh, yeah, I would. You just have to work out with the remote communications the best you knew how. You know. So, yeah. Yes. Um, I know you mentioned how uh, the traits are can be taught and trained. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen realistic optimism as something that you can train? It's or is it more innate, or how could you go about? Sure. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't know that it'd be right to say I've seen it trained, but that's that's a large. That's part of the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. Is um, you know, is would be instilling some optimism. You know, sort of countering false beliefs, or you know, like you know, the catastrophization and overgeneralization, and you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, but I would say that. This, if you you could adapt this big branch of cognitive behavioral therapy to to that sort of optimism training, yeah, yeah. Any other question? Yeah. Well, I always say I have a research study with an N of one me. Okay. Okay. So, and I, so I started this. Uh, back in 2011, when we were in England, and uh, I was posted to U.S. Embassy in London, and we were going to an Anglican church, and I, w- I had a lot of access to Church of England, everything. And so, um, so uh, they, so there's a really good way in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, 1662. It's got the Psalter, okay? They call it, you know, the Book of Psalms. It's uh, it's its own little translation. I don't recommend praying that particular translation. But the way they divided it up, they have it in morning and evening prayer, and then they have the portion of the Psalms you pray during a 30-day cycle. Okay, So if you really want to do this, then you get a liturgical translation of the Psalms. Because if you just use the ESV or the NIV, you kind of lapse into Bible study mode, and it's, it's harder to pray them, I find. Okay, So there are two, uh, two, um, two translations I've found particularly useful. One is called the Grail Psalms. It's an official uh, K 
Catholic translation of the Psalms. Uh, so the Catholic translations are heavily influenced by the Septuagint. But the Septuagint was actually the Bible of the New Testament writers. So it's like you're not going to be far off track. So it's very poetically rendered. So the Grail Psalms, you can get it in a single edition, like it, um, and uh, in a single book, it's just in a single volume. So I, if you want to use my method, I went, I took the Book of Common Prayer, and I just figured out the psalms you were supposed to pray for a particular day. Then I went to the Grail Psalms, and then I put the number of the day, and then I go to, you know, do the psalms for that day, and then so the next day you put the next, you know, day number two, day number three, and so on. And you can do that. You do it for 30 days, and then. Uh, for the months with 31 days, you repeat the last day. That's how that works. So, and the other one is in the back of the 1979 Episcopal Prayer Book is another really good rendering of the Psalms that's, uh, that's really helpful. And the third thing, I'll get to your question. The third thing is there's a thing called Psalm Prayers. It's really interesting that, um, that traditional denominations use. And that kind of summarizes the psalm and a little prayer at the end of the psalm, okay? And so if you go to some, some psalters, you'll find these psalm prayers at the end of the psalms, and that's a really good way to kind of figure out how you might apply that psalm as a prayer for your own life. So those, those are my quick, and quick things. Yes? Well, it, you'd, I mean, that would require sort of people who do the resilience training, which there are some. Um, yeah, that, so to do, I mean, you'd go through, one way to do it would be go through these factors and then do exercises related to different factors. Um, I've got a little workbook I worked up where, you know, we, you kind of explain the factors and then there's some scriptures in it and then you, you kind of try to figure out how to apply that. So just, I think way, you know, if, once you kind of work out the factors and which ones you want to teach to, so you probably wouldn't want to teach to all ten. You'd figure out some of those you'd want to teach to, and then you you would you would if you just want to do a kind of a briefer group training, you do group discussions and so on. That's how it's typically done. Yes. Thanks for helping talk as always, Sam. So I have a planted question for you. Oh, uh oh. Can you talk a little bit about psychiatry and missions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, as you know, I haven't really. The only psychiatry missions I did is with Samaritan's Purse. But um, I would say psychiatry is badly needed in missions. Because, you know, from you and Roger working at Tumaini, maybe you should actually or you do a pitch for Tumaini if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so you've done it. It's a huge place for psychiatry in missions. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Kenya, Uganda, um, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Sudan, Turkey. Yeah. And it, I would view, I would view it kind of like the military views. If that's how I view my work with Samaritan's Purse, is you want to get people back and on the field. You know, you want to get the soldier back out there killing the enemy. In our case, the devil, but we're not really killing him ourselves. But anyway, but um, yeah, but we want to get get our people back there on the field and preserve them in the uh, in their uh, you know in their positions rather than having all these you know, people who flame out and go back, and it's super embarrassing to be a former missionary who came back under, you know, sort of negative circumstances. So, yeah. Minimize casualties. Minimize casualties, that's right. Kind of, kind of along with that, I'm sorry. I know that no, please, go ahead. No. But um, with psychiatry and with all these tools, how, 
are there any resources you can point us towards? I know a lot of times psychiatry, some of the foundational work for it is anti-biblical. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the presuppositions are anti-biblical. Mm-hmm. So it can be difficult to know, okay, there's helpful things in psychiatry. How do, how do we sift out um, psychology and psychiatry that is helpful and beneficial and biblical from, uh, there's a lot of resources that aren't. So like one of the things you mentioned was mindfulness and not really believing. I agree, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I get. I guess I would use the analogy. So, as a Christian, you'd probably just need to make it an area of study, okay? And I would use the analogy of like someone from Kenya or Ghana who comes to the U.S. to study psychiatry. So they have to translate their local culture, you know, into whatever they're being heard in terms of Western psychiatry. And I think as Christians, we have to do a little translation of, you know, kind of, okay, well, I I don't think I can go with that, but this one seems pretty good. Okay, so I'm pretty clear. Again, I'm going to go way over, and I don't want to do this, but um, but the uh, like the I'm 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 fine with the typical psychotropic medication. I'm getting very uncomfortable with the more, like, uh, especially psilocybin, which is now being researched and, and somewhat uncomfortable with ketamine, because I think, especially with psilocybin, they're, they're kind of generating a chemical religious experience that has some pretty negative implications. So there's just stuff like that you need to think about. Um, there's a book that a friend of mine, John Petit, just uh, edited. It's called Christianity and Psychiatry, published by Springer. And he's put together a lot of, uh, of authors. Most of they're all, I think they're all Christians. Some are more liberal than I am. But I wrote the first chapter in this book on the history of Christianity and Psychiatry. And so uh, you might get a, some resources like that to look at. Because that has some really good chapters in it. All right. Well, thank you for coming. We're done. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be around if you want to talk.